Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. Tonight's program is shaping up to be a science festival. First, I'm going to take some time to tie together some of my favorite topics, namely genetics and the microbiome and neurodegenerative disease. In this case, we'll be talking about Parkinson's disease. Then we'll be learning about xenotransplants. That means organ transplants, where the donors are a different species. We'll explore the current state of the science and the foreseeable and maybe unforeseeable pitfalls ahead. All this and answers to your questions in emails and phone calls here on Ask Dr. Don. I'm about to launch into a discussion of Parkinson's disease. All right, so... Parkinson's disease, as most of you are probably aware of, is a neurodegenerative disease that primarily, at least most dramatically, affects the ability to move. Uh, Many of you may have seen a movie a long time ago with Robert De Niro, and I think it had Robin Williams in it, called Awakenings. Uh, This was based on a book by Oliver Sacks, a wonderful author about neurological phenomenon. If you haven't heard of him, you should definitely look him up. His stuff is extremely entertaining as well as uh, deeply educational. It's hard to get both of those in the same package, so believe me, you won't be disappointed. Anyway, Parkinson's disease is the way that the people in that movie seem to have, but they had caught it uh, rather than the way Parkinson's disease really develops in humans. First of all, what is Parkinson's disease? At its root, it's neurologically a loss of the ability or the cells in a certain part of the brain. That part of the brain is called the substantia nigra, which actually, believe it or not, means black stuff in Latin, because doesn't that sound better in Latin? Everything sounds better in Latin. It, uh, what, one of the things the substantia nigra does in the brain is it makes dopamine and sends it to an area of the brain called the putamen. And this, the purpose of this structural release is to initiate and coordinate movement. As you get a gradually progressive deterioration in the brain, you get problems initiating movement. But not just movement. There's also immune dysfunction, sleep issues, and slowed gastric emptying, leading to SIBO and a host of other malabsorption issues. So Parkinson's disease has been associated epidemiologically with pesticide exposure, working in a lead acid battery plant, and more recently with having a bad microbiome. We'll get to what's going on here in Uh, as we continue. There are risk genes. Once we were able to decode the human genome, we thought we were going to figure out everything. Darn. Nope, we didn't. But we did identify some high penetrance bad genes, about nine variations in things that have to do with the production and maintenance of uh, the substantia nigra. And these genes... Uh, some have some interesting names. One's called Parkin, one's called Park 2, one's called Lark 2, and there's another one called Pink 1. The, uh, you know, they're in a lab, you know, staring, staring at computer screens. They've got to have some fun, and naming things is one of the ways they do it. But all of these genes are involved in the production or maintenance of something called alpha-synuclein. And alpha-synuclein is an important protein in brain function. It regulates the synaptic vesicles. Those are the little Ziploc bags full of neurotransmitters that are released from neurons across the synapse. That's how you propagate a nerve impulse. Well, 
There's also alpha-synuclein in the heart and in the muscles where it serves similar purposes, sending out information packets, although not necessarily neurotransmitters. Parkinson's disease is characterized by the the accumulation of alpha-synuclein in the neurons and the alpha-synuclein clumps and eventually accumulates into something called the Lewy body, L-E-W-Y. And these Lewy bodies are sort of the hallmark of Parkinson's disease in the way that the uh, beta amyloid tangles are the hallmark of, and plaques are the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease. But this is a very late finding, and it's maybe not directly causal. It's associated, and it's a marker. It's really easy to confuse the marker with the cause. And I think for a long time, we've made that tactical error as we attempt to treat these neurodegenerative diseases. Now, in individuals who don't have high-risk genes, people with high-risk genes will get Parkinson's disease in their 40s. There are a lot of factors we've identified that seem to well, act as environmental amplifiers. Infections of various types, viruses, pesticide exposure, tobacco smoking, alcohol, and dysbiosis, a bad microbiome. These all increase your risk. And I think you have to stop back, take a step back and realize that the current functional medicine view, and a view I share and I think that will become, that has become coming widely shared in the medical societies is that you don't catch Parkinson's disease and you don't really usually inherit Parkinson's disease. You evolve it in a process that takes, well, 20 to 30 years. Now, what we do know about this process is that the first place that the Lewy bodies show up, these tangles of alpha-synuclein, is they show up in the olfactory bulbs of the brain. In the nose, there are sensors. They're called olfactory uh, bulbs, and they are actually the, well, they're extensions of the brain. They're like little brain pseudopods that come back into the top of our nose, just like the retina is technically an extension of our brain, effectively another pseudopode that kind of goes out through a little hole to get into the orbit and then spreads out in, in the back of the eyeball. This sort of neurological interaction with for the sense organs is, of course, how we manage to perceive things. And one of the earliest and most sensitive ways to screen for Parkinson's disease is checking the sense of smell. And so if when I do a neurologic exam, prior to COVID especially, but just about every time I did a physical, I would check a person's sense of smell because I recognized that it could give me an early warning that maybe they had a neurodegenerative disease. And we have ways of identifying these things fairly early now. So the concept of early identification means that we can bring those functional medicine strategies to bear to mitigate or delay the problem. So let's talk about the vicious circle uh, from a functional medicine perspective. You start out with dysbiosis in your gut, pro-inflammatory bacteria caused by excessive use of antibiotics, exposure to antibiotics in uh, factory farmed meat, exposure to to bacteria, the use of a diet that essentially favors a dysbiosis because of its high sugar and high simple carbohydrate content and its absence of good bacteria. So when you have a dysbiosis in your gut, you have a low-grade infection with inflammation and it generates something called reactive oxygen species. Fighting off the infection, basically, you've got little cells with the equivalent of cellular flamethrowers running around stamping out the uh, the bugs, but you're also causing collateral damage. And 
so once you get the collateral damage, uh, you you have also, in the course of fighting this low-grade infl- infection, released pro-inflammatory chemical signals called cytokines. But the reactive oxygen species damages the gut barrier, causing a so-called leaky gut. I call it gut permeability uh, breakdown, but... Leaky gut is the term that's common in our in our society, and it's the one you'll find on the internet. So what happens then with leaky gut is that those inflammatory signals, the cytokines, leak across this damaged wall, and they leak back into the lymph and the blood, and they begin to circulate in the system. You get increased numbers of pro-inflammatory T-cells. You get increased numbers of pro-inflammatory macrophages, increased numbers of monocytes. And some of this gets into the central nervous system, where it activates the microglia, which, of course, are immune cells. They're the brain uh, microglia. They produce reactive oxygen species trying to find the bacteria or the virus that they've been alerted to look for, and that disrupts the blood-brain barrier, which is a problem because it allows in more pro-inflammatory cytokines. Well, now we've got the room full of gas, full of natural gas fumes. Let's go back to the gut and light the match. So back in the gut, one of these altered gut bacteria is capable of producing alpha-synuclein. And we see levels of this protein detectably building up about 15 years, 10 to 15 years before any signs of Alzheimer's disease. So this builds up and migrates in two ways. It migrates up the vagus nerve to the brain through a pathway that is biologically present in healthy tissues. We never really, I was taught that the vagus nerve was an efferent nerve. It went from the brain out to the body. The fact that things travel both ways is a newsflash to all of us in medicine. And so while those, so as that protein, which is already misfolded, migrates up into the brain, it meets those activated microglia and they recognize it as a foreign object and they attack it. Meanwhile, the gut bacteria that are down there making the alpha-synuclein also alter something called small chain fatty acid production. This is your butyrate and your acetate, and these are protective in the gut. It produces also competition, right? It eats up all the fiber, so the good bacteria fall, and it competes successfully with our symbiotic healthy bacteria, which are no longer able to do what they are supposed to do and produce the short-chain fatty acids because they've basically gotten, are getting starved out, kind of, a warfare metaphor, if you will. So the person gets constipated, which increases the number of bad bacteria and produces more and more uh, alpha-synuclein. Meanwhile, the levels of protective Prevotella, which are supposed to go and fix the leaky gut, drop, and the leaky gut gets worse. And now the alpha-synuclein is actually getting into the bloodstream and the lymph and because the blood-brain barrier, barrier is now compromised, not only is it arriving in the brain from the vagus nerve, it's also leaking through the blood-brain barrier. So we know that certain of the functional medicine genes have an association with Parkinson's disease. One of them you've already heard of because we associate it with Alzheimer's disease. Another is another one of those detoxification enzymes. This one's called 2D6, and it's important in detoxification from pesticides and other neurotoxins, like the ones produced by mold. And we do see an increased risk of a problem with Parkinson's disease and perhaps vulnerability to neurotoxins in people who have a flawed 2D6 uh, conversion factor. In other words, their enzyme doesn't function well. They don't get rid of the pesticide. Another thing people with a 2D6 uh, gene variation, or what we call a single nucleotide polymorphism, the gene works, but it's sluggish, or too fast, as the case may be. In this case, 
tamoxifen, a drug that is given to people with breast cancer to prevent progression, is actually a pre-drug. It has to be activated by 2D6 to do anything. And guess what? It can't be activated. And women, many women are given tamoxifen without being tested for this gene variation because it's not widely known. COMT, a gene that we went over before, is another one that is highly associated with an inability to detoxify. And by now you realize that toxic exposure from all sorts of sources is a risk factor. There are certain uh, increases that go with having different dopamine receptor alleles, which given that this is about making dopamine, it sort of makes sense. But what's really fascinating about the dopamine receptors is that when you use L-DOPA or uh, Cinemet, which is a combination of L-DOPA and Carbidopa that's taken orally, and the idea is that the Carbidopa prevents your enzymes in your gut from breaking down the L-DOPA, the L-DOPA gets into the bloodstream, it gets into the brain, and it goes to the areas that are deficient in dopamine and helps them function. Certain variations of the dopamine receptor associated with the quite variate, quite a lot of the variations in side effects from person to person who take L-DOPA. And there can be a lot of side effects. But the most common and fairly universal thing that happens with treatment over the years is that people no longer have a consistent response to their L-DOPA. We used to, I used to think it was just because the receptors were getting burnt out. But actually, like most things, that's overly simplistic. There's much more to it to that. Uh, people get a switching off phenomenon. So if people have a GG variation of their COMT, that makes them the faster processor. Remember I said some variations make you slower, some make you faster. Well, if it makes you faster, you blow through your L-DOPA quickly and you essentially get some movement back and then you crash. But it's not just a problem in the brain. There's lots of things in the gut going on at the same time. One of them is poor gastric emptying because, hey, remember the vagus nerve? That's what's responsible for emptying your stomach. Well, if you if your cinemat is sitting in your stomach for hours, it's not getting into your bloodstream particularly well from there. It needs to be broken down in the small intestine. People whose stomachs don't empty generally have poor small intestinal mobility. So bacteria climb up from the colon and start growing in the small intestine. This is called small intestine bacterial overgrowth, and it can also increase gut permeability and further worsen the problem. So you get increased permeability and increased inflammation, which just feeds this whole dumpster fire that's going on in the poor person's brain. It becomes really easy to not know how much to give and how often to take it, and it's a moving target and very frustrating for the patients and the doctors. So let's go to management, some general principles of management of Parkinson's disease. And I first want to say that many people delay going on L-DOPA because of this phenomenon that has been interpreted as receptor burnout, and they take something called macunabine, which has uh, L-DOPA in it, but I think probably has a bunch of other stuff in it. And people who are taking this or taking its extract uh, can do quite well for a long time. But another thing that has a lot of scientific uh, background behind it is the use of CoQ10 in very high doses. So ordinarily, I might tell someone to take 150 or 300 milligrams of CoQ10, 300 probably if they're on a statin. In Parkinson's disease, the minimum dose to make a difference is about 1,200 milligrams. But at that dose, it's probably getting into the brain, particularly in Parkinson's patients because of their leaky blood-brain barrier, which means it's having an an ability to protect and preserve the mitochondria, which is really the the common endpoint of all cellular death is that the mitochondria say, we're out of here. And well, that's all she wrote. So other things that can be very helpful are berberine and rifaximin. Rifaximin is a drug, 
and it's used to treat the SIBO. Berberine, on the other hand, is a nutraceutical. This is one of the active ingredients in golden seal, if you didn't know that. And berberine, 500 milligrams twice a day, actually has been shown to raise uh, the production of dopamine in the gut. And that dopamine actually does get into the brain in the same way that the oral L-DOPA is. So if you're if you've got Parkinson's disease, uh, the berberine is you know a really safe and potentially quite beneficial thing to be starting on. That and the CoQ10 are top of my list. But you also need to fix the microbiome. So what does that need? Fiber, right? Fiber and prebiotics. So that's where your soluble fibers, your Metamucil, your psyllium seed, your oat bran. That's where those come in as preventatives. You've got a family history, load up on the fiber. Prebiotics, because you want to feed the good bacteria. And probiotics, actual oral doses of probiotics, just kind of on general principle, keep the population up so they act like mulch and keep those bad actors that make the alpha-synuclein, well, down in the basement where they can't hurt you at levels that your body will be able to process. And lots of magnesium, both for motility and also because there's a form of magnesium that gets into the brain and is highly protective uh, to the mitochondria. That magnesium is called magnesium 3 and 8, and it is, the 3 and 8 part is a carrier protein. I use it for calming, for anxiety. I use it in uh, neuro, I use it as a neuroprotective factor because it does do that as well. And I actually have one patient with uh, ADD and depression who real, who discovered if she took very large quantities, like 2,000 milligrams a day of this stuff, that she would actually not have to take antidepressants or ADD drugs, both of which gave her terrible side effects. So I had put her on it for some of her side effects, but she just kept going up on the dose because there's no upper limit. Uh, she spends a fair amount of money on her 2,000 milligrams a day. But on the other hand, how much would you pay not to have to be on ADD drugs and antidepressants? Seems like a pretty good trade for me. Now, there's a reversal agent that I need to tell you about, and this is something called ECGC. And this has been shown in both cell culture and animal models of Parkinson's, that green tea extract can alter existing alpha-synuclein in the cells so that it becomes less toxic and easier for the body to process. This is huge and something that we all uh, need to think about taking because it also has really potent anti-cancer effects. And, you know, realistically, what's not to love about this stuff? And there's more uh, lifestyle. I mentioned uh, antioxidants a little bit. Just in general, if you've got those reactive oxygen species, taking 250 to 500 milligrams of sulforaphane, taking some vitamin C, some vitamin A, some vitamin E, these are all useful antioxidants that eat up those bad free radicals before they do the damage that they can do. Having those in your gut all on an ongoing basis as the bacteria are producing their stuff makes a big difference in your gut health. It's also important to get enough B vitamins, methylated B vitamins if you need them. And a preview, we'll be talking next week or the week after about methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase as our gene of the week. And then a few minerals Selenium, zinc, iron, and copper. Uh, selenium at 300, zinc at about 30 mil- 300 micrograms, I should specify. Zinc at about 30 milligrams. Iron is debatable. I think probably small amounts, like four or five milligrams, would be fine. And copper at about 10% of whatever dose of zinc you're taking. You don't want too much copper because it has neurological toxicities. So, I hope that you've enjoyed this deep dive into functional medicine and Parkinson's disease. This email comes from Peggy in Long Island. 
Uh, and the subject is colon cancer follow-up question. Dear Dr. Don, imagine my delight when I was on the treadmill listening to your podcast as I do every morning when all of a sudden I hear you read my email about what I can be doing to prevent a recurrence of my colon cancer. When I got home, I immediately listened again and took notes on your thoughtful and detailed response, making a to-do list for myself. I've already made more changes in my life based on your response, but one thing I would love to get some guidance on is looking for a functional medicine doctor. This is a realm I'm unfamiliar with and would love if you could possibly address what I or anyone else would be looking for when searching out a healthcare professional in this area. Well, Peggy, I'm going to tell you that, um, first of all, the um, first of all, I'm going to tell you that you're very lucky living on Long Island because two of the people near you, Monique Class and Joel Evans, both within 10 miles of where you live, Joel Evans and Monique Class, and also Scott Banks. But the first two are teachers, my teachers for functional medicine, and they're amazing. They're, uh, they're wicked smart people, and I'm sure that anyone they're working with is wicked smart as well. So you might want to use them, or if their practices are full, which would not surprise me a bit, you can go to ifm.org, Institute for Functional Medicine.org, and click the Find a Practitioner. You can get a list. You can do that, and you'll find a list of other practitioners. For something like cancer, you really want a certified functional medicine practitioner. Years ago, uh, Jeff Bland and uh, David Jones uh, did not patent or trademark the term functional medicine because they wanted to give it to the world, which is wonderful and generous and probably would have been just a complete hassle to defend in court anyway. But the point is there everybody and his cousin is calling themselves functional medicine doctors now because it's the new buzzword. Well, it's wonderful that it's the new buzzword, but the skill level you need means someone has to gone through, have gone through a fairly rigorous uh, trial of study. And people who have that certification have essentially done a fellowship in functional medicine. They've attended many seminars, done hours of reading, and taken a board exam to prove that they really understand the concepts at the le- at the depth that's required to give you what you need from your functional medicine practitioner. So I just thought it would be very good for me to also tell other people how to find the Institute for Functional Medicine, the only certification body. And really, it's uh, the certifications by the people who actually invented the field. So yeah, I'd say that's where you should go. Okay, real quick one from an anonymous writer in Salinas. Uh, Dear Dr. Don, you've been my virtual health guru since I moved here in 1987, and so much of your media advice is incorporated into my lifestyle. But this one stumps me. I've been losing hair very rapidly for about eight weeks now. I understand normal loss, 50 to 100 hairs a day, uh, but it's at least that much every hour for me right now. And she goes on to describe how she has handfuls of hair in the shower. She is an active 65-year-old female, healthy diet, lots of exercise. But she was diagnosed, she says, with lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma three years ago. And she began BTK treatment with ibrutinimid, ibrutinimid nine months ago with very few side effects. She gives me recent blood tests, all of which are okay, except for a slightly elevated thyroid hormone, and asks, could the thyroid hormone be the cause of the hair loss? Anonymous, I just wanted to tell you that it's probably your chemotherapy. Uh, even though you didn't get side effects immediately, it's it's super interesting because the normal thing that happens, and I think I covered last week COVID-related hair loss occurring about three months after a a case of COVID. So I'm assuming if you'd had COVID, you would mention that. Uh, But in the case of these drugs, these drugs work by poisoning the 
very beginning of hair growth. They affect cysteine bonds, and cysteine bonds are really super important for the strength of nails and hair. The delay before you're going to see the skin, the nails and hair changes is six to eight months after beginning therapy. So actually, you're right on schedule for uh, developing this side effect. And the good news is that it will get better. Uh, Also, another bit of good news is I found at least one study that suggested that using biotin at a dose of five milligrams a day was helpful in reducing the amount of hair loss for people on this agent. So I hope you found that helpful. Moving on to our next topic, xenotransplantation. Will pigs solve the organ crisis? And we do have an organ crisis. We can do organ donations, but more than half the people on the transplant list die before they get an organ that matches them. So let me tell you the story about David Bennett. David Bennett's heart was failing. He's only 57, and he wasn't eligible for a transplant. But the doctors in January were willing to offer him the chance to receive a heart from a pig. He said, well, I know it's a shot in the dark, but it's my last choice. This happened at the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, where he was being treated. On January 7th of this year, doctors transplanted the heart, which came from a genetically modified pig. We'll tell you more about that in a moment. Bennett survived for eight weeks with his new heart and seemed to be doing well until suddenly his body shut down. After his death, the research team, who did, of course, extensive necropsy to try to figure out what had gone wrong, learned that the transplanted organ was infected with a pig herpes virus that had been missed by all of the tests. Now, even a few weeks is a long time for an animal organ because the human immune system immediately begins attacking non-genetically modified pig organs literally within minutes. So two months is a record, and it's a very big victory for the field. It is a proof of concept. And a few months after this, two research groups independently reported transplanting the first pig kidneys into three people who had been declared legally dead because they lacked brain function, and the organs produced urine and were not rejected by the human immune system. And uh, then there have been a couple more pig heart transplants this last July. And we think there's going to be a surge in efforts. There's more than 100,000 people in the United States waiting for organs. People are starting to rattle the bars at the FDA and say, well, what about it? They've got data. They've got data from hundreds of baboons that have survived for up to three years uh, after receiving pig organs and cells, mostly hearts, kidneys, and insulin-producing islet cells to treat diabetes. So there's a group of scientists who are arguing that xenotransplantation is ready for prime time. It's ready for human use. But I and a number of other researchers are feeling, well, among other things, Uh, Mr. Bennett's experience has told us that our techniques for screening for viruses maybe aren't as perfect as we'd like. So we could raise chimpanzees or baboons, and that was done back in the 60s. Those are not easy animals to raise in volume, and I think anyone would argue that there's some ethical issues with that. Pigs are pretty smart, so... That's a discussion I'm not going to have right now. I'm going to stay on the feasibility aspect of it. But they're a reasonable source of organs, and they might have some advantages over the human equivalents, the donor transplants. For one thing, they'd be in better shape. We could schedule the transplants in advance, use fresh organs that wouldn't have to be you know, carried around in an ice chest, and the surgical team would be available the minute uh, that uh, – you know, you'd set up the surgery, schedule it, bring the pig in, sacrifice the pig, and grab the heart, and off we go. So you could do lots and lots of screening, and that would be 
awesome. But up until the 1990s, you couldn't because the human immune system just rejected them. But the major reason, the recognition factor that the immune system uses is a sugar molecule that's found on the surface of pig cells called alpha-gal. And by the way, there are people who are allergic to alpha-gal who have become allergic to it. And when they eat uh, pig or other animals that have this protein or sugar molecule on on the meat, they will get a bad allergic reaction, including rash. So that's something to keep in mind, and that can be tested for. But they mutated the pig gene so that it wouldn't make the protein. And now these modified animals can produce organs. And then this happened before the CRISPR-Cas9 thing came out in 2013. But the minute that happened, people were, oh, we can just dial a genome now. And many companies are in the process of, well, I'd call it drug development, but it's not really drug development. It's species development, trying to tailor a species of pig that will be just perfect as a transplant pig. One company altered four pig genes, including one that makes the pig organs grow to an appropriate size for a human body, because they tend to get a little too big. And they also added six human genes to the pig, four that suppressed the immune response, and two that were anti-blood coagulation, so that the blood doesn't coagulate with inflammation. And, you know, other researchers have made changes that might be eventually used to eliminate three genes that prevent human antibodies from attacking an organ at all. I'd be a little worried about that one as far as cancer resistance goes. But here's the problem. All of these genetic modifications have been tested and shaped exclusively to non-human primates, which really doesn't make any sense because uh, it's like saying, well, let's test it in monkeys And then we'll just give it to humans because, you know, humans are like monkeys and we know better. We know there are big differences in terms of most, we said baboons and macaques are primarily the research animals being used. These are not us. And there are substantial differences in things like our surface markers. There's another group that's working on pancreatic islet cells. Now, this would be essentially a pancreas transplant. And they have engineered a line that have no alpha-gal, and they've transplanted islets that worked in five baboons that lived for two years after being type 1 diabetics. They didn't need insulin. They didn't need immunosuppressive drug. And uh, trials for this one could begin within a year. And again, they seem safe in humans. So uh, what about that? Are they safe? Well, we know that diseases that affect pigs can jump from transplanted organs to humans. Then there are the endogenous retroviruses. Endogenous retroviruses are viral elements embedded in the pig genome. About two months ago, we talked about evidence that a human endogenous retrovirus that comes from Epstein-Var virus might be a risk factor for multiple sclerosis. Essentially, the virus starting to reproduce in us, just the way herpes comes out and starts to reproduce, this virus then priming the immune system for an autoimmune disease. And there are porcine uh, pervs, that is just not perverts, P-E-R-V-S, and these are embedded, as I said, they're inherited viral DNA. So what are PERVs? They're enveloped RNA viruses, that's what a retrovirus is, and they contain an enzyme called reverse transcriptase. These are slippery little devils. They're able to transcribe their single-stranded RNA genome into a double-stranded DNA copy using another enzyme, the integrase. This DNA copy is integrated into the genome of the infected cell. These are mammalian cells. HIV, for example, is a retrovirus that infects CD4 cells and integrates that viral DNA copy uh, in the genome of these cells. But you can't find HIV proviruses in liver cells. It can't infect them. 
And that's a whew. HIV does not infect sperm or egg cells either. But some retroviruses can. When a retrovirus integrates into a sperm or an egg cell or into the stem cells that make them, well, then it gets, after the fertilization of the egg, the virus will be present in every cell of the developing embryo, and later it'll be throughout the organism. These are called endogenous retroviruses. We have inherited these from the earliest multicellular animals, You find them in reptiles, birds, all mammals, and most of these are defective due to mutations or deletions. Uh, Some actually can produce viral particles that you can find in the placenta, and one of them is called HERV-K. This one you can find antibodies against it in tumor patients and pregnant women, indicating that the virus proteins are being made and expressed and recognized by the immune system. But it's well known now that the envelope proteins of endogenous retroviruses of numerous species are actually functioning in placental mammals as syncytins, syncytins, from syncytia, syncytins. And here's an interesting digression, Ala James Burke, these synthetins are envelope genes from the endogenous retroviruses that have been captured during evolution to function in the formation and and growth of the placenta. They're found in all placental mammals, even marsupials. And it encodes, it's a gene, it encodes a membrane-bound envelope protein that actually endows the cell with the, with the ability to fuse with other cells. And it's expressed in the placental level in all mammals, and it, its purpose is it allows a large amount of tissue, not cells, tissue made of fused cells to exist. And this is part of the placenta. There's the cytotropoblast and the syncytiotropoblast in early development. And the syncytiotropoblast is fused cells with many nuclei, and such tissues have unique properties, and they can grow very fast without dividing, without that messy business of cell division, which is exactly what happens in early development. So, eight evolution grand, getting back to these pervs. There are natural receptors on the surfaces of human cells. They're called human porcine endogenous receptor virus A receptor. We don't know why they have them, but what we do know is that baboons and other non-human primates don't have a very good one. So it's deficient and it won't probably work well as a target for pervs. On the other hand, the one that we humans have is working quite well. So if any pervs kind of wake up or get through, well, potentially that could cause a problem down the line in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Our methods of detection just aren't good enough. Now, we can test viral RNA, proviral DNA, viral proteins, reverse transcriptase activity, virus particles, or look for antibodies in the animal that we're thinking of using a donor for perv-specific antibodies. Those are all good, but if the inherited virus is still dormant, It could only be detected by running a total genome on the donor animal. If we manage to use CRISPR to scrub all of these pervs out of a line of pigs that we then patent, basically, and let someone patent, I might might say, and grow so that we can steal their organs uh, for ourselves, well, I guess that's a special form of predation, but I'm really concerned about safety and the forces of economics pushing them to doing something that might be really pretty unsafe. So, bridge too far? Maybe so. I guess we'll find out, because I think this freight train has got enough momentum to manage to get approval, just the way that uh, CRISPR has proliferated and... uh, Fortunately, it's not as easy as it initially looked, 
but we're about to be able to seriously monkey with the ecosystem, and I hope that we use our powers for good to restore biologic variability to vanishing species. I hope we don't you know, do the Jurassic Park version of Brave New World, but I do worry about the judgment of corporations uh, or owners of corporations. I think we're getting to watch a ra- some rather spectacular versions of that at the moment in our society. And I'm going to go ahead to a quick story. This one is a study that looked at military personnel, basically a brain bank dedicated to the study of deceased service members, and they looked at their brains for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. They had 225 brains. They found them in 4% of the brains tested, and they had 45 brains from people who had a history of blast exposure, and uh, three of those had chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Uh, on the other hand, 41 didn't. And they had seven P of 180 brains without a history of blast exposure. Let's see, they had a couple of other head injury cases. But ultimately, a lot of these people had uh, CTE, chronic encephalopathy, but what they didn't have was they didn't have any history of a blast exposure. What they did have was a history of contact sports. And 10 of the 60 contact sports uh, participants had CTE, and that basically made up a a large uh, portion of the group. So I guess, uh, first of all, football and contact sports, probably not a great idea to let your kids do. And I can't say that one enough. Let's take the last five minutes and uh, talk about the gut-vaginal axis and, yeah, the vaginal microbiome. Pretty fascinating research coming out about this. So the normal human vagina has, it's the opposite of the microbiome. In the microbiome, you want biological diversity. That's what's healthy. But in the vagina, you want a predominance, a monoculture, if you will, of lactobacilli. Lactobacilli basically scarf up all the glucose and turn it to lactic acid, which lowers the vaginal pH and prevents the growth of most bacteria, lactobacillus being one of the few real acid-loving bacteria. Of course, helicopylori is another one of those, but I've never seen anyone find that in the vagina. What you do get in microbiologic diversity in the vagina are things like Gardnerella, uh, Bacteroides, Mycoplasma, and these are associated with, well, some symptoms, but there is more to this picture. Risk factors for this, uh, antibiotics, of course. Uh, Diet is really not that important in contradistinction to the microbiome. The prevalence of uh, culture-proven Bacterial vaginosis is very high, uh, but 84% of women are asymptomatic. Maybe a third of them at any given moment have it, however. And it's a risk factor for endometriosis, pelvic inflammatory disease. It raises levels of group V streptococcus, which can cause complications of pregnancy. You get miscarriage, chorioamidinitis, preterm labor, and premature rupture of the membranes. These have all been linked with elevated levels uh, with BV, even when it's silent. And, of course, prematurity disposes the infants to all sorts of risks. This was interesting. If you're getting fertility treatments and the lactobacillus in your vagina is low, it substantially reduces the success rate for fertility treatments. So a study of 130 Danish women showed that 35% of these women undergoing IVF with normal vaginal flora had a success where only 9% of those with abnormal vaginal flora. And at $10,000 a pop for IVF, let's be fixing those microbiomes before we attempt it. Now, how do you fix it? Well, you could give antibiotics and that'll eradicate it. But at 12 months, the recurrence rate is 50 to 60%. On the other hand, certain strains of lactobacillus taken orally 
migrate from the rectum into the vagina. Not all lactobacillus, but some of them do. And they get in there and they make lactic acid and hydrogen peroxide and down goes the pH and they block, they act like ground cover. Again, blocking the attachment of pathogens. They crowd them out and they scarf up all the fuel. So you can improve the microbiome by taking certain strains, the strains of lactobacillus and rhamnosus that thrive in the vagina. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. There was a probiotics and pregnancy study. It was uh, done in New Zealand, over 400 women and their infants, and it found several highly significant findings. So they gave lactobacillus rhamnosus during pregnancy. They got, get this, a reduction in the prevalence of gestational diabetes in women, particularly women over the age of 35. They had a threefold reduction in gestational diabetes in this group, which is especially prone to it, just by giving them an oral supplement with lactobacillus rhamnosus. Another aspect to this study showed that the babies born to these mothers who began taking lactobacillus early in pregnancy had a reduction in eczema and lower allergies at one year. And even more interesting to me, because it speaks to that gut-brain access that that this show has been about, is decreased depression and anxiety postpartum. And all of these effects were statistically significant, less depression, less allergies, and, oh my goodness, uh, less diabetes. Let's start giving probiotics to all pregnant women. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.